no one seems to really have good answers for what's going to happen to search and what are we going to need from agencies. But what we know, what we've heard from a lot of these companies is they need help and they need guidance. And there's just very few agencies and consultants capable of providing that general AI knowledge and strategy. So I think that we just need more people that are AI literate and, and capable of providing this kind of guidance. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 64 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput. I am fresh off of a keynote Friday, last Friday in Germany. It is Monday, September 18th. I'm still trying to get my bearings straight here. So I did a crazy jaunt to Germany. I, I got there Thursday at noon local time, did a talk 9 a.m. local time, and I was back home in Cleveland at midnight Friday. So I was traveling for 28 hours in Munich for 26. And here I am on Monday trying to figure out what is going on in the world. You, Mike, are not in Cleveland, if I recall correctly, right? Where are you? Right. I'm in uh, just outside Los Angeles in Anaheim for uh, tomorrow. I'm speaking at the California Association of Realtors uh, annual conference. So they're doing a lot of content around AI. So props to them. Really excited about it. Nice. And I actually have two talks this week in Cleveland. I'm really excited. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere, but we have the cozy uh, innovation conference Tuesday night. So if anybody's in Cleveland and wants to grab tickets for that, I'll be there. I'm actually going to talk at Baldwin Wallace uh, College on Wednesday. So lots of talks and you, you've got another one after this, right? Aren't you somewhere going, else this week? Going straight to Dallas from here okay. for later this week, the NIO Summit, which is nonprofits and nonprofit serving agencies. So super excited about that one too. We should probably share our speaking schedule more. Like we don't <laughs> talk about it much, but maybe in the newsletter, because I know like a lot of people, you know, we might, we're doing a lot this fall. And it might be a chance if people want to like come and say hi, or maybe we'll organize yeah. some meetups or something as we're bouncing around. We should probably do that. Like yeah. just organize some meetups. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> Kathy, I'm sure you're listening. Kathy McPhillips on our team. Um, remind us at, to, to get some meetups going. <laughs> All right. So this episode, episode 64 is brought to us by AI Advertising. Start winning with AI Advertising's innovative approach to maximizing budget and performance. Use AI to optimize campaigns by gaining deep customer insights, drawing out motivations and behaviors, enabling intelligent targeting, and ensuring messages hit the mark. Stop wasting time, money, and resources. Let AI advertising lead while you take the credit. Visit AIadvertising.com slash AIpod to learn more. So thanks to AI advertising for supporting the episode. All right, Mike, it's... Uh... I mean, it's an interesting week, like not a ton of like major earth shattering news in AI, but yet some really, really fascinating topics that I think have broader implications to what's going to be coming this fall. Um, so let's get started with the main topics. Awesome. First up, we have two big AI announcements from some top consulting and advisory firms this week. And these give us 
a sneak peek into how many major service firms are pivoting to AI. So the first announcement comes from EY, which announced the launch of EY.AI, which is a platform they're building, quote, to help clients boost AI adoption, according to VentureBeat. According to VentureBeat, they say the company said it has invested $1.4 billion as the foundation for this AI platform, including embedding AI into proprietary EY technologies. They have one called EY Fabric, which is used by 60,000 of their clients. And they're also funding a series of cloud and automation technology acquisitions. And the announcement from EY also included the fact that following an initial pilot with 4,200 EY team members, EY is also going to be releasing a secure large language model called EY.AI EYQ. That's, now, that's not easy right to on say. The, <laughs> I just realized that <laughs> saying it out loud. So in another announcement, major AI company Anthropic announced a partnership with another big consulting firm, BCG. And this partnership is actually designed to bring Anthropic's Claude model to more enterprises. According to Anthropic, BCG customers around the world will get direct access to our AI assistant to power their strategic AI offerings and deploy, deploy safer, more reliable AI solutions. Now, Anthropic also says that through the collaboration, BCG will advise their customers on strategic applications of AI and then help them deploy Anthropic models like Claude 2 to actually deliver business results. So we're seeing a couple really high-profile AI vendor plus consulting firm partnerships here. First off, is it safe to say that we should expect kind of every major consulting firm to build AI into its client-facing business? Yeah, I was actually, when I was like getting ready for this one, I was trying to think which ones haven't already made a major announcement, like who's left, because we had Accenture in June announced a $3 billion investment into their data and AI practice. Um, by the way, uh, Paul Doherty, the leader of AI practice at Accenture has an amazing book called human and machine. So one of our favorites, uh, it's probably like four or five years old now, but still a great book. So if you're looking for a book recommendation, uh, human and machine is an awesome one. Uh, so that was Accenture in June. We had McKinsey announce a partnership with Cohere in July. I know there's been multiple partnerships announced related to open AI. So it's just like, Yes, like this is kind of where we're going. It's the future of these consulting firms. It's the future of service firms. And I think what we're seeing is every enterprise, the large businesses in particular, they're trying to solve for generative AI, specifically large language models, and they need help. So this becomes a supply and demand thing. It's like, who do you turn to to help you figure this out? So the strategists, the consultants become the people. And then if you flip it, the large language model companies like Anthropic and Cohere and OpenAI and even like Google and others, they're competing now for the enterprise customers. And the best path to do that is through the trusted advisors, consultants who already have relationships with the brands. So, you know, if you're Cohere or Anthropic and you want to get into these large enterprises, you go through a BCG or a McKinsey or an Accenture because they're the trusted advisors to these enterprises. And if, if you're the recommended large language model for them, then they can wrap services around it. And I think we saw, I don't know, probably like five, 10 episodes ago, we talked about McKinsey's large language model offering and somebody had shared mm -hmm. that online. And I mean, they're charging like five to 10 million to like build these custom integrated large language models. 
So this is a massive opportunity for these service firms. Um, and then what we're seeing not only at the big service firm level, but even down to the smaller, you know, marketing agency level or just any, you know, service provider or strategic advisor, they're trying to figure out what is the future of their firm. You know, mm-hmm. as as services are evolving, as the needs are evolving, what can they be offering? And so large language model strategy and implementation certainly seems to be a, a good bet for the near future. So you know, I just think like the demand is going to keep growing. It, you know, it's at the higher, the big enterprise now, but it's going to move down market real fast to the mm-hmm. point where in the next year, you're going to have small mid-sized businesses trying to figure out what are they going to do with language models. Um, but these big enterprises have a lot of challenges to implement these things. So like Anthropic Cohere, if you're trying to get a language model into a big enterprise, there's privacy concerns, there's security, there's the fact that this stuff doesn't work like normal software. So it's somewhat unreliable. We'll talk mm. a little bit about that in, in, in one of the next topics. There's the resistance by workforces who don't want to use this technology. Maybe you're afraid of it. There's the rate of innovation. Uh, like, you know, you can do build this around a GPT-4 and what happens if GPT-5 comes out or what happens if Google's Gemini comes out and it's better than, you know, Chad GPT. So there's this uncertainty around the market. And then there's the, do we go with a closed model like an Anthropic or a Cohere? Do we go with an open source model like a Llama 2 for Meta? So there's just, this is what these big consulting and advisory firms exist to do is to solve these complex business challenges and help brands navigate through what is going to be a very disruptive technology that's going to get introduced into their companies. Yeah, so that, Kind of front runs a little bit some later topics we'll talk about, but it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, there's not just this whole AI revolution when it comes to, oh my gosh, this technology has broken out um, and is really exploding everywhere and it's going to change everything. There's such change management involved too, that apparently these enterprises are going to be turning to people like EY or BCG to help with. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just... There's so many unknowns ahead. And right now, a lot of the enterprises that we talk to, that we hear from, they're just aware they need to start solving this and they don't really know where it's going to come from. And I think that there is this disconnect where the more technical side, like the CIO, they're working on larger scale solutions for the organization. But like, we'll talk with the marketing department and they have no insight into what's going on with the CIO's office or, you know, what's going on at the, the broader implications across the organization. And they're just trying to say, like, we just want to start writing posts more efficiently and writing articles and, you know, improving what we're creating and doing transcription and summarization and like all these use cases that live within marketing and sales and service. These, you know, dozens or hundreds of obvious use cases. And they don't want to wait around for a year to figure out what to do. And that was, that's what then leads to like, well, let's just go get a third party, you know, software product, like a writer or a Jasper or something like that, where we can just turn this on, you know, two weeks from now and start piloting it in the organization. So that's, you know, I think what we're seeing, but it's definitely going to keep evolving to where a lot of these professional service firms are going to be building, you know, right now there's AI practices, but the reality is it's going to be their whole business in, in the not too distant future. Everything they're going to be consulting on is going to be related to AI strategy and implementation. Are there any lessons here for services firms broadly? I mean, ones that might not be the size of EY or BCG? The same, the same needs are going to exist in every company. So, you know, we have our AI for Agencies Summit coming up in November, and this is one of the, the key things we're going to be talking about is just where 
is the demand going? So when I was building PR 2020, you know, through the years and you and I were, you know, there together, um, it was all about like, for us, it was all about inbound marketing content, build your blog, drive traffic to the site through that stuff, build a social media presence. Like that was the game plan for 10 years, 10 mm -hmm. plus years. And now the question becomes like, does that game plan even work moving forward? Like what is organic search going to look like? And so I think a lot of agencies have really built over the last 10 to 20 years around digital marketing and, you know, driving traffic to websites and driving leads and converting leads. And, and, and the question just becomes like, what does that look like in the future? And so every service from every agency needs to be thinking about that. And then the, the client side, you need to be thinking about what do you actually need from your agencies moving forward? And everyone's trying to figure this out at the same time. Like no one seems to really have good answers for what's going to happen to search and um, you know, what are we going to need from agencies? But what we know, what we've heard from a lot of these companies is they need help and they need guidance. And there's just very few agencies and consultants capable of providing that general AI knowledge and strategy. So I think that we just need more people that are AI literate and, and capable of providing this kind of guidance. So along those lines, actually, our second topic is about answering a really big question on everyone's mind. And their question is broadly, is AI really that big a deal for the future of our work? According to a new Harvard Business School paper from nine authors, including leading AI expert Ethan Mollick, the answer is a resounding yes. This paper is titled Navigating the Jagged Technological Frontier, Field Experimental Evidence of the Effects of AI on Knowledge Worker Productivity and Quality. And this paper details a multi-month experiment where these researchers worked with BCG to gauge how AI is transforming knowledge work. Now, I'm going to quote Malik on some of the results here. And Ethan, as a reminder, was a speaker at our Marketing AI conference this past year. He says, quote, there is a ton of important and useful nuance in the paper, but let me tell you the headline first. For 18 different tasks selected to be realistic examples of the kinds of work done at an elite consulting company, consultants using ChatGPT for outperformed those who did not by a lot on every dimension, every way we measured performance. Now, this included tasks like creative tasks, analytical tasks, writing and marketing tasks, and tasks related to persuasion, which a consultant might be asked to do for a client. So specifically, Malik and the team of researchers found that consultants using AI finished 12.2% more tasks on average, completed tasks 25.1% quicker, and produced 40% higher quality results than those who didn't. Now, what's interesting here is this study also showed that when people used AI for tasks that it wasn't actually good at, they were way more likely to make mistakes and put way too much trust in AI. So the key, says Malik, is being good at judging when AI is good or bad at a task. Malik actually says that some of the consultants in the study just weren't good at doing this, and they suffered in their performance as a result. Others, however, navigated that dynamic really well. And he says they're, quote, acting as what we call cyborgs or centaurs, moving back and forth between AI and human work in ways that combine the strengths of both. 
I think this is the way work is heading very quickly. Now, Paul, there's a lot to unpack there, but what do you see as these findings meaning for knowledge workers? I think it's the start of what we're going to see is a lot of uh, more formal research into the impact. So we've theorized about the impact on knowledge work a lot on this show. Uh, I get asked all the time about the impact on knowledge work, how quickly, how big. Um, and what, would, what we've lacked is like the empirical data behind it. So I think it's important because it starts to show what we have in many cases made assumptions about. Um, you know, we're, when, we, when we look at it, when I you know, project out that I think you know, it's going to affect millions of jobs in the next 18 months, I try and do it at a micro scale. Like I'll sit there and run thought experiments of like, okay, I have a team of 50 writers. I use these tools. Uh, it takes the average writer four hours to create an article. Well, with these tools, it takes two hours. You know, you'd start, so you run through all these different use cases and then you stack those use cases across an entire department or team and you come away with, wow, we don't need as many humans. Not that like writing jobs are gone or SEO jobs are gone or email jobs are gone, but like we don't need as many people to do the same level of output. So the options are you're going to increase what you do. You're going to just make more of the thing or you're just going to use less people to create the same level of output. Like those are pretty much the only two options. And so I, the way I've looked at all of this is that, well, each company is going to have a choice. They're either going to produce more of the thing or start a new thing to redistribute people to, or they're going to choose to take the cost savings and just have less people doing the work. So I think that studies like this become very important to try and start making much more tangible conversations around what is the real impact going to be and to, to expand it. So if you haven't read, I mean, Ethan's post is a great summary. We'll put Ethan's post in uh, the show notes. The actual study itself is like 58 pages long. Great use case to test the Anthropic Claude 2, upload the PDF to Claude 2 and have it analyze it for you. Um, but what they did is they took uh, 758 BCG consultants, so 7% of their consulting force, and they were allowed to use GPT-4 with no special fine-tuning or prompting and some very basic training, in essence. Uh, and then they did a bunch of pre-testing and surveying to establish baselines. And then they asked the consultants to do this wide variety of work for a fictional shoe company that BCG kind of devised to represent an actual BCG client. So this is kind of how the, the process works. So you get a sense of kind of what went into this study. So if I'm a knowledge worker listening to this or reading the paper, it occurs to me, like, how do I actually start putting this into practice in my own career? Like, it sounds like this ability to move back and forth between AI and human work in ways that kind of combines the strengths of both is really, really important for careers moving forward. So like, what skills should I be thinking about to get good at that? Yeah, I, maybe, I mean, I'll, let me go through a couple of the other things that jumped out to me. Maybe we'll back into this answer because it is, I mean, it, it, it's the thing we're all trying to figure out is like what matters moving forward. Mm. So a couple of things he said that stood out to me is uh, AI is weird, which is something Ethan says all the time. Um, that no one actually understands the full range of the capabilities of these large language models because there is no instruction. Manual. So mm. the testing and experimentation with the tools. So in terms of a skill needed right now, 
you need the skill of being able to run lots of experiments and being analytical and being strategic and being curious. Like, so the reason Ethan can talk authoritatively about this is he has spent the last nine months testing these things and building use cases and testing prompts and experimentation. And like, that's it. Like, that's what made him an expert in this thing. And so I think for moving forward, that is one of the most important things is the curiosity and the willingness to experiment and then share with your team what you're finding. The other thing he talked about is, again, this deep realization that these things are imperfect by nature. So he gave the example of writing a sonnet. It is amazing at writing a sonnet, way better than I would be. But if you asked it to do it in 50 words, it can't because it mm. doesn't actually know word counts. It thinks in tokens, like fragments of words. So it's really hard for it to do that. It's also hard for it to do math, like, but it's really good at ideation. So there's like, it's the dis dis discovery of what are they actually good at? And you can't figure that out without experimenting yourself. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting is they talked about that the consultants who weren't as skilled kind of leveled up with this technology more. So the, mm. like the, the most skilled people saw a boost, but it was the people that were kind of probably more like mid-level in their capabilities. They saw the greatest increase. So it works as this weird, like skill leveler where it, it really raised, they said the consultants who scored the worst when we assessed them at the start. So in the benchmarking phase, um, had the biggest jump 43% when they got to use the AI. Hmm. And so that's, he talks about like, not, 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 he says, I do not think enough people are considering what it means when a technology raises all workers to the top tiers of performance. Um, the other thing they talked about is this whole idea of like not knowing what it's capable of and not knowing where its flaws are is the people who came to rely on it too much, what they called kind of falling asleep at the wheel. They mm. made more mistakes than normal because they assumed it was good. It's like, I think of this like the self-driving car. I know my Tesla makes all kinds of mistakes. So you keep both hands on the wheel and you're paying attention at all times. Just because it's driving itself doesn't mean you're checking email. But if you don't know that, you get in a Tesla the first time and nobody tells you that. You're like, oh, full self-driving, amazing. You click it, you go, and you start checking your phone and whatever, and the thing crashes you had no idea that it actually wasn't perfect. Like you assumed it's called full self-driving. It, it drove you. That's not what it does. So this understanding of the technology um, becomes really critical. So I, I just think that, you know, where we go in the future and what matters right now, what we know is being able to work with these tools, figure out what they're capable of, and then maximize the value you can create with the use cases it's really good at. There are going to be things it's not good at. And that, that's the whole jagged frontier is like, we don't actually know what's within its capabilities and what's outside of its capabilities. And so for the foreseeable future, figuring those out and then applying them in your company saying, okay, it's really good at summarization. What are all the places we do summarization? Mm -hmm. It's really good at transcription. It's really good at writing transcripts, you know, like video transcripts, like, um, or scripts, like what are the things it is really good at? And let's double down on those. And I think that's what really the frontier looks like right now. And the people who are going to get the most value out of these tools. Yeah. And based on my own observation and experimentation, you know, people throw around this word entrepreneur to talk about employees that have that kind of business owner mindset and yeah. are treating their role as if it is a business with the bottom line and a goal and a mission to, to meet. 
And I think that mentality just lends itself naturally to this type of experimentation where if you are viewing things with an entrepreneur mindset, even if you're not an owner of a company, you're really going to back into this much more easily, I think, where you're going to say, oh, okay, of course we have to run experiments. Of course we have to double down on what's actually driving performance, et cetera. So that's really, really helpful in my experience. Yeah. And we do get asked all the time, like, what are the careers of the future? And it's not a cop-out for me to say, I don't know, go figure it out. No. Like you got to right. find your own career path. Like it takes being a domain expert in your field and understanding what these things are capable of. And once you connect those dots, like now you can figure out what is the career path. Again, is it an AI ops role to help other people figure this out? It is an, is it an AI educator where you're teaching people about these things and running workshops? Like there's all kinds of career paths to be defined, but I haven't really seen a great paper yet that says what those are going to be. Hmm. So to kind of wrap this up, I am curious, do you have any thoughts on the flip side of this equation? What should companies and leaders be looking to hire for as it relates to kind of skills that Malik is outlining here? Yeah, I, th I think it does go back to just, you know, seeing what people are capable of and what their comfort level is with these technologies. And, you know, I go back to, when we were hiring at the agency all those years, we were looking for good writers. And so we would give them writing tests. Well, writing tests are useless now. And so now when we hire at the Institute, we still do a writing test, but mm. we also have them do prompting within GPT-4, whatever tech we're guiding them on. And we want to see how the prompts, how they developed their prompts, how they improved on it, how they kind of communicated with the chatbot, and then like have them compare an actual writing sample versus the machine writing sample. What did it do better? Like you're looking for people who can infuse AI into their work and be comfortable with it and want to seek more knowledge about how to continually improve there. What you don't want to do is hire someone who's like, I don't want to use those tools. Like, okay, that is, that's just not going to fly. So right now, I mean, you're really just looking for people who are curious and motivated to solve for the future and, and help kind of figure it out together what it looks like. So speaking of what the future looks like, our third topic today actually concerns you, Paul, because you just published a LinkedIn post that contains observations on where we're headed with AI. And it's really blown up uh, thanks to kind of its unique breakdown of the current AI landscape and what that means for the future. So in the post you wrote, quote, I've done more than 60 AI presentations this year had dozens of conversations with enterprise, venture capital, and educational leaders, and fielded hundreds of questions about AI from audiences. Based on those experiences, here are some observations about where we are and where we're going. So my first question is, where are we and where are we going? Can you break that <laughs> down for us? So I don't know if people find this interesting or not, but the context around this post, because some people, like maybe they think I wrote this with like ChatGPT or something. <laughs> Again, I don't use AI writing tools to write anything for me. So this is all me. And I had gotten back from Germany at midnight Friday, as I mentioned to start. So I'm like jet lagged and uh, we had just got new cats and one of my cats had to go to the vet. And so I'm Saturday morning at 9 a.m., sitting, waiting, I ended up being an 11 hour wait. It was kind of a crazy day, but I'm sitting in my car with only my phone and on my computer, I have nothing. And I was like, I should like, I'm thinking about the trip to Germany and what just happened. And like the conversations I was having with some major brand, at this event. And, and I was like, I, what do I like have to say about this? Like, what did, what do I actually have? I learned. And I started actually, instead of writing about the Germany thing, I started reflecting on the entire year and all of these conversations I've had with just 
some amazing people, amazing leaders, amazing companies, but educational leaders, venture capital firms, enterprise, like all these different organizations we've talked to, small businesses, large businesses. And, and I just started kind of writing, like, what have I, what do I think is happening right now? Like, what is the state of all of this? And so I literally wrote this thing on my phone. Um, and I was like, I, I guess I'll just publish this. I don't know. And so I put it on LinkedIn and that was it. Like, it was not some crazy thing. I've been working on this forever. It was just sort of spur of the moment. I had nothing to do because I was just sitting with my cat waiting, you know, 10 hours to see the, the veterinarian. So I, I kind of summarized into three points. So the first was the vast majority of organizations are just getting started. Even the organizations, and th this is critical, even the organizations that have been doing AI for the last 10 to 20 years, think of like a Google, they have been doing AI for 25 years, literally, they just turned 25. Um, so the companies that have been using machine learning for the last decade or more to do predictions, recommendations, build personalization, even those companies that were on the frontier were not prepared for generative AI and the transformative impact that it's having across every industry. So that was like the first observation is even these companies that people think are the leaders in this space were caught flat-footed when it came to generative AI. And most of them that I talked to are still playing catch-up. Like they still haven't solved for exactly what to do about this. So that led to the second thing. Most organizations, including some of the largest enterprises in the world, are still thinking about AI as a technology challenge and opportunity. They are not addressing or even considering the significant near-term need for comprehensive change management throughout the organization. So again, they're coming to us saying, which tool do we get? Which use case do we solve for? And I'm coming back and saying, have you thought about the impact of this on your organization? Like, again, you, you know, I'll, I'll show that um, Microsoft 365 Copilot video when I do talks, like the minute and a half demo of what Copilot's going to be and how it's going to be infused into Docs and or Microsoft Word and Excel and Teams and all these areas. Like, we're just all of a sudden, everybody's got AI, the accountants, the lawyers, the HR professionals. And I'm like, are you even thinking about that? And the answer is no, they're not. Like they don't really grasp that it's just like this completely disruptive technology, like general purpose technology across their entire organization. It's not just use cases in tech, in marketing and sales and service. So that leads to the third thing, which is there's a lack of urgency to solve for this wider impact. And so I asked myself, like, why? Like, why aren't people thinking about this at a higher level than just tech and use cases? Um, what I've arrived at is like the leadership at most of these organizations don't have a baseline understanding of what AI really is and the effects that it's going to have across workforce and operations and tech stacks and culture and products and services and their ability to compete. So it always comes back to the education and training. There's, there's a lack of like baseline understanding. And this is what I see over and over again, because the talk I do most times, the keynote is, is some variation of an intro to AI. Like, it's like, what is it? What are the, what is language? What is vision? Um, where are the use cases going to live? What does this mean to your organization, to your industry, to your people? Like it is not deep in the weeds. Like it's just high level and people just like, they don't even know what to say after the talk. Like hmm. they'll come up to me. Like I, I had no idea. Like this is we had been talking about AI. We've been thinking about it. We were doing some of it. We actually, I've talked with people who have AI centers for excellence, like in their companies, like big companies that weren't thinking about the implications, like in, in this sense, like mm. this broad business implication. And so like that, 
to me is the biggest thing is like you go do this talk to a groom of 500 people and they're just staring at it like what in the world and then they they'll come up to me and say these things like we had no idea like that was the craziest thing i've ever seen and to you and me and other people who live in our bubble it's like really like is it mm. like i feel like I, I should stop doing this talk and i should move on to the next talk and then i realized like no people still need this like future of business intro level talk because that's where the majority of the market still is. Now, I know you unpacked that quite a bit, but I want to dwell for a minute on it still. This idea that the vast majority of companies are just getting started with AI, because I talked to so many people who still find it totally shocking, even when we're talking because their company needs help getting started with AI. Yep. So often I think, Anyone in the audience or that has followed our work sometimes thinks their company is very, very far behind and everyone else is ahead. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think there's a disconnect in people's minds. They say, I hear so much about AI. I see all these AI influencers giving advice. I hear everyone uh, giving talks about it, publishing articles about it at these companies. Of course, they have to be far ahead, right? Yeah. No, I, I think it's it's critical because if like I'll often ask up front who's tried ChatGPT. It seems like such an obvious thing. We ask it on our Intro to AI for Marketers free class that I do every few weeks on Zoom. And we've asked it in a survey and it's like 95% of people have used ChatGPT. You ask that same question in a room of CEOs or HR professionals or accounting professionals, you get like five people raising their hand. So yes, there is a, there, like we have what, 55,000 subscribers at the Institute right now. So you broadly ask all of those people, it's going to be 90% plus, and they all think that they're behind everybody else. But you ask non, like at the frontier level marketers about this stuff, like business executives, C-suite people, maybe they've tried it, like, but they, they very rarely do you find the people who are experimenting with it or infusing it their workflow daily. And so I do think that there is within the world that we live in every day, this assumption you're just behind everybody else, that your company's behind because you don't have an AI council or you don't have generative AI policies, or you haven't formally figured out pilot use cases, or you haven't found a new AI tech and you think you're just like way behind. Hmm. Um, that is not the case. And it is like, I've talked with a lot of software companies and you would think SaaS companies would be the first in line that would be figuring things out. They're hmm. not. Like, there are a lot of SaaS companies that are behind. Um, there are a lot of venture funded companies that are behind. So when you get into like healthcare and financial services, uh, manufacturing, like that everybody is at the starting. And I just, I think it's so important because the opportunity is so significant if you figure this out in your industry. And I think the other thing we always talk about is I don't care if you're the intern or a marketing manager or an HR manager or a CMO, like it doesn't matter what your role is. Every, every organization needs people who go and solve for this and then bring that knowledge back to everybody else. Hmm. And so I think from a career perspective, it's, it's such an exciting time when you realize how important this topic is to the future of business. And that there are very few people capable of connecting the dots in organizations and that you can be one of those people. Um, that's a really exciting thing to, to know. And so that I think was like, you know, I kind of tried to end that post on a very positive note, which is like people who are curious and seek this broad knowledge and understanding 
will be able to connect the dots in their companies and their industries to build smarter companies. And mm-hmm. then in the process, like take advantage of these kind of unparalleled opportunities we have. And, and like, I, I mean, there was some negative comments on there. It's like, fine. I, I like, cool. Like I get that some people don't agree with that premise, but I believe quite deeply in it. Um, every, every indicator we look at appears to agree with this is massively disruptive. People who compare it to the metaverse or blockchain, that, that's just a joke. Like, they're, they're not the same thing. So I think we're entering a phase where it's really hard to dispute that AI is going to transform every aspect of business and every knowledge worker's profession. Hmm. And, and the sooner we kind of accept that and figure out what to do about it, the better off you are all going to be individually and we are going to be collectively like as a society. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad the post resonated with people and, and got people talking, whether they agree or disagree, like, good, like, let's have conversations, let's figure it out. But that goes back to the importance of that Ethan Malik talk, topic we started with is we need more data, like we need more proof of this mm. working, we need more people sharing what they're doing and what they're seeing. That's awesome. So before we dive into rapid fire, can you just really quickly talk to us about the change management component of what you posted? You said that most leaders aren't thinking about it. They're just thinking about the technology and what tool to use. Like, what should they be thinking about when it comes to change management? Yeah, I mean, like simply, let's say you get an AI writing tool. So great, you go, you start there. Well, everybody in your organization writes. So you have marketing, sales, service, HR, finance, legal, ops, everybody. Everybody writes emails, proposals, articles, whatever it is job offers, job descriptions. Um, so if you, if you go get a writing tool, awesome, you have the tool. What are they supposed to do with it? Like, how does it change their workflow? How does it change their job description? How does it change how they, they train and educate the next generation of talent? Um, does it affect your overall tech stack? Do you need five of the other tools that you had that you're paying $10,000 a month for if this tool replaces those? Like, it's just, it's so transformational across every aspect that you can't just get a tool and start a pilot project and then say, okay, good. We, we did AI. No, you mm-hmm. didn't. Like you just th- threw a grenade into it. Like now nobody knows what their job is and they're afraid this thing's going to do their job for them and they have no training of how to use it properly. And so that like change management with any technology is critical, but with a general purpose technology that can be used by anyone in the organization and affects what they do and how they do it. There's a lot of other work that comes with doing that the right way. So that's the change management is like realizing this changes everything. And you have, you have to plan for that. And you have to help your team along in that process. All right, let's dive into our rapid fire topics this week. So first up, a big meeting on Capitol Hill. So tech executives, including Sam Altman, Elon Musk, Google's Sundar Pichai, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and NVIDIA's CEO Jensen Huang just met with U.S. lawmakers in a closed-door forum organized by Senator Chuck Schumer to discuss AI regulation. This was the first in a series of meetings aimed at educating lawmakers about AI amidst the rapid developments happening in the field. The executives reportedly pushed differing agendas in the room. Um, There was disagreement over issues like open source AI development, And this was all according to the New York Times who talked to sources that claimed to be in the meeting. Musk, in particular, warned of existential risks from AI. He said, quote, if someone takes us out as a civilization, all bets are off. Pichai and Zuckerberg highlighted AI's potential benefits as well as the need for transparency. 
And overall, some lawmakers criticized the open, uh, the closed door nature of this forum, though Schumer said that it encouraged open debate. So, Paul, on one hand, I can see some people seeing this as maybe a photo op, a PR move. But on the other, the sheer firepower of the the people in this room is just incredible. Like, how important is this meeting? Do you have any speculation on maybe what else might have been discussed or what could come out of it? There was very little released about it. I was actually kind of surprised how little is known about what was actually said. I haven't heard any like, you know, murmurs about how different people interact. There's a lot of big personalities in that room. Some of them don't get along very well. Mm -hmm. So just like nothing, like there really wasn't much to go on. So, I mean, I think it's, it's important the conversations are happening. Um, I did see just in the last like 24 hours, some additional um, things starting to bubble up about the executive orders we were sort of promised earlier in the summer. So if you remember, mm-hmm. President Biden's office said that there would be some executive orders related to AI that would be coming this summer. Um, if I'm not mistaken, summer ends in like four days, I think falls official. So I don't know if it's actually coming in the next few days, but I have heard, uh, some stuff starting just through like Twitter threads and stuff that, um, the 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 executive orders might actually be coming and we have no idea what those are so just something to keep an eye on i do think that we will see some movement this fall again i don't expect any laws or regulations or anything you know like crazy to happen but executive orders are a possibility but we have no guidance of what those might be um the second thing is i watched this amazing presentation from bill Gurley. uh so he spoke at the all-in event last week i think it was last week right the all-in podcast put, put their summit on yep and he had this incredible uh talk called 2851 miles and i i would recommend watching it uh it's about 35 minutes long we'll put the link in the show notes um but they published the full video online and it's all about regulatory capture and and this is the thing that really worries me about the direction this is going. Regulatory capture is, in essence, the tech companies themselves influencing what the regulations are. And what tends to happen, which Bill hi- highlights in great detail and very humorously, is that when regulation comes, it is the big incumbents who win almost every time. Mm. So the fact that the people in the room are Google and Meta and open AI and like uh, Microsoft and all the big players, it, they're trying to influence regulation. Um, they're, they're claiming they really want regulation. And as Bill highlights, when big companies ask for regulation, they're just accepting it's going to come and they want to control what it is. And so you can certainly look at all of this and say, this isn't going to work out well. This is not going to benefit society in the end. It's going to benefit the big players. They're just going to make more money as a result of whatever the regulations are. And so this is, I'm, this is a non-political thing for me. Like, I'm, I'm not saying this from any side of the aisle. I'm just saying, like, overall, I'm just really skeptical that whatever the government does is going to end up making a major impact in a positive way. Uh, hmm. I think it's just a really messy thing for the government to have to solve right now. But I, I guess we need as many conversations as possible. I just hope that it isn't a situation where the big companies end up dramatically influencing what the regulations are. And it, it most likely, I assume, would head in that direction. 
So in other news, Dreamforce, Salesforce's mega popular annual conference wrapped up last week and AI played a big role in the product updates that were announced. The star of the show was Salesforce's new Einstein Copilot, which is bringing generative AI to every part of the CRM. Salesforce also rolled out Einstein Copilot Studio, which allows companies to customize their Copilot instance and build AI apps on top of it with no code. The studio, interestingly, also includes a prompt builder, a skills builder that gives you control over where Gen AI is used in your organization, and a way to build models. Salesforce also talked up its, quote, Einstein trust layer, which is a foundational layer of security and privacy features across all of its AI products. And these features basically make sure that the models don't train on customer data. And there's also features to put guardrails and controls around the instances of Copilot and Salesforce's AI being used across companies. So, Paul, this comes on the heels of HubSpot announcing its AI roadmap at Inbound a couple weeks ago. What jumped out to you as important for business and marketing leaders to understand here? Yeah, I mean, I think most of what they've been announcing, we've been hearing about all year. I mean, there was announcements going back to like February and March of both HubSpot and and Salesforce that they were going to be building this stuff in. I think the big question on everyone's mind right now is like, okay, when is this stuff going to be available? Like everybody just keeps talking about these things and um, you know, debuting that they're going to be building these things. And I, I didn't see timelines of when all these features are rolling out within Salesforce, but I, I expect that that is the thing a lot of people are most interested in that and the pricing of these things. Um, I do, I'm intrigued to look into the ability to build apps, the no code stuff. Like, I think that's going to be really important moving forward is that the non-developers like you and I can actually go in and build stuff. And it does seem like AI is going to enable that. Um, I know Repl.it, we've talked a lot about more of a startup. Well, they're not really a startup, but, um, more of a VC funded organization that's enabling these kinds of things. They want to, you know, enable a billion developers kind of thing. Hmm. So, yeah, I think to me, those kinds of tools are going to be critical. And then just seeing this stuff work. Like I, I think now with Microsoft and Copilot and, uh, Google workspace and HubSpot and AI, and it's like, we all just want to see if this stuff is going to do what it's promised to do, because right now we're just theorizing about how disruptive this is going to be. And it takes getting this in people's hands for us to realize, is it, is it actually going to be that way now? So speaking of getting things into users' hands, Google is actually nearing the release of its conversational AI system, Gemini, which is designed to compete with ChatGPT. So this comes from reporting from Reuters and the information. Gemini is a collection of models that will power search, chatbots, and content generation across text, images, code, and other applications. So Google actually plans to make Gemini available to companies through its Vertex AI service, which we've talked about previously on this podcast. Apparently, a small group of companies reportedly already has access to Gemini. So no exact date on when this is rolling out, but it sounds like it is meant to be Google's GPT-4 slash ChatGPT. How big a deal is Gemini in your mind, Paul, like both for the overall AI landscape, but also for Google's competitive position in AI? So little is known about it. I mean, everything that we're hearing here, we've seen different things mentioned by Google over the last few months, like Demis Asabas has done interviews where I think they've mentioned Gemini and 
So there's some indications about what it is and how big it might be. I It seems like it's generally accepted that it will be bigger and more powerful than GPT-4. I think that's mm. the bet that Google has to make is they have to come to market with something significant. Um, as we talked about last week's episode, they obviously have the data to train something bigger. They have the computing power to train something bigger. They have chips to train something bigger. So I think that um, it's critical to Google that this is way better than what we've seen from Bard so far. And I would imagine that they're putting all of their resources behind making it such. So I, I see this as a very, very important. And it sounds like there's a chance we might we might see the first glimpses of it this fall. But again, these are just reports from the information Reuters, nothing confirmed from Google yet. Hmm. So investment bank Deutsche Bank is aggressively experimenting with AI to transform its business. They're apparently running 25 AI pilots that are going to be launched in 2024 across HR, tech, and investment banking. So this is one big example of this AI-powered digital transformation that we're seeing across industries. For the bank, some of the use cases include automated client briefings and a chatbot to handle corporate banking inquiries. Now, in one use case, the bank actually demoed an AI system that could use internal data to perform the role of a junior banker, and they used dummy data from a fictitious company to test this out. Now, according to Business Insider, quote, the tool presented a client briefing, a report to prep investment bankers before client meetings. Thanks to generative AI, what would usually take a team of junior bankers a day or two to put together was produced in seconds. The bank has said it aims to double or triple its AI-related workforce. Business Insider says about three to 400 people currently work on AI-related projects. They also indicated they would retrain existing employees who are affected by this technology. So, Paul, we've talked at length about consulting and advisory services. This is adjacent to that. How much disruption do you see or expect to see in financial services due to AI? Yeah, I mean, it's going to have a massive impact on financial services. But I just think this is so representative of what we talked about earlier. Like, this is what we're saying. Like, this is change management. This isn't like a tech and a pilot project. This is like, oh, wow, this changes what these bankers do. It changes their future of knowledge work in our business. And the fact that they took a very specific thing, ran tests, like analyzed the impact it was going to have. This is what companies need to be doing. Like, I'm not a big supporter of Deutsche Bank. Like, I, I nothing about what what else they're doing. But like, this is the kind of model you should be following within your organization. Pick a role, pick a job, pick a mm. team and run the experiments yourself. Don't wait for industry reports to come out or us to say it's 20 to 30% and run with that in your deck for your CEO. Go run experiments yourself and figure it out. And you may see that 20 to 30% is conservative. It may actually be 70% or 90%. You have to solve this stuff. And so this is, again, what I think every organization should be doing. Um, don't believe the reports. Don't do it yourself and figure it out and then start doing that across your entire organization. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think it's cool that we're seeing this kind of data shared. So California Governor Gavin Newsom just signed an executive order to get state agencies ready for AI. And that order includes directives to work on things like study the risk AI poses to California's energy infrastructure, create state guidelines for procuring generative AI tools, and provide training, AI training for state government workers. 
Now, Newsom's deputy comms director told Politico that the executive order is the state's first step toward understanding how to govern AI. Now, Paul, this seems like a significant step forward, but it's definitely one of the first we've heard among state governments that seems to be this extensive. How fast do states need to be moving on this issue? Yeah, we, we've talked about this before when we were doing, I think it was like around the 40s or 50s episodes. Um, we were talking a lot about like laws and regulations. Yeah. And the assumption we were making, and that seems to be holding true, is like this: the states are going to move faster than the federal is going to move. And so while it's interesting to watch what's happening on Capitol Hill and what executive orders may come, I do think that watching the state level is going to be a better indicator in the near future. And certainly doesn't, it makes sense that California's kind of one of the first movers in this space. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to keep an eye on this. And you're going to have to, especially for the bigger enterprises that um, do business in California, like you need to have people in your organization are paying attention to this stuff and thinking about what it, how it's going to impact how you use AI moving forward. So last but not least today, Stability AI, the company behind the popular stable diffusion image generation tool, has just released Stable Audio, which is their first AI product that generates music and sound. So now anyone can use this to generate short audio clips that you using just text prompts. And interestingly, users are not going to be able to ask the model to generate music in the style of a real popular artist like you can't say, give me music that sounds like the Beatles. Now, Stable Audio has a free version and a $12 per month pro version. In the free version, you get 20 audio generations per month of tracks, and the tracks can be up to 20 seconds long. The pro version gives you up to 500 generations and up to 90 seconds in a single track. So, Paul, I want to ask, it seems like AI-generated audio is a big area to watch moving forward. Like, How big a deal is a release like this? There's going to be a, yeah, a bunch of these offerings for sure. We've talked about, you know, generative AI, when we're thinking about it, there's lots of categories, but we think in terms of text or language, uh, images, video, audio, and code. Mm -hmm. And so what we've said is like last year was breakthroughs in image uh, generation was the big thing. And certainly the language side, uh, specifically with text tools. And then this year with Runway, we started seeing major breakthroughs in the video side of things. And audio also seems to be having, you know, its moment this year. There's been breakthroughs announced from Meta, Google, um, Stability. So a lot of the AI, the AI research labs are working on the generation of audio. Um, so I, I, again, I don't hear this and think, oh, I, stable audio is the only option, but it is right. representative of the breakthroughs that are happening. And I think audio is going to be something, whether you're a marketer or you're uh, some aspect of an organization or you're a producer or a creator, like whatever you're doing, um, just assume that AI is now capable of helping you create background music and other uh, audio files for your work. Yeah. And like we mentioned in respect to video generation tools, if you go and try one of these tools and you get a few seconds of audio and you're like, this sucks, like what's all the big deal or the hype about i mean yeah wait wait a few weeks wait a month because these things yeah. move so fast it's going to be very very rapid innovation i would say moving forward yeah yeah they seem to have cracked the code on how to do this it's it's really just now a question of like the applications and the companies you use but yeah go try a few of them it's uh if this is something you need in your daily workflows there are tools now to help you do this Awesome, Paul. Appreciate you breaking down this week in AI for us. Uh, I know we really appreciate the insight and the time you take kind of understanding all these topics. 
Yeah, safe travels. Good luck with the talks. We will uh, reconvene in Cleveland someday. Although I think I'm <laughs> on next week, so I don't know when we'll see each other again, but we'll do it uh, virtually next Monday. And, all right, everyone, have a great week. Uh, thanks, Mike, as always, for putting this all together. We will talk with you soon. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.